what is man? What is the nature of man? The history of philosophy and theology offer a broad spectrum of spectrum of answers when it comes to this question. We'll see that more in a minute. On one side, you have the existentialists and the nihilists who see man as a useless passion, that life is meaningless and despairing. And then you have, on the other side of the spectrum, you have humanists and rationalists who see uh, the good and idealistic um, form of man, that, that man at his best potential can, can reach great heights sort of idea. Um, for humanism, man is the most supreme being in the universe, despite the fact that man was made from cosmic soup and has a destiny to dust, right? I mean, go from evolution to basically, um, what do you call it? Um, what do you call it when man just stops existence? It stops existing. Annihilation. Annihilation, yes. So, so they have the idea of evolutionism to annihilationism, and um, and in between, man somehow uh, can accomplish great things. So, uh, what we're going to try to do is first look at the Christian perspective of <coughs> the nature of man, and then we'll look at um, what the modernists and the or, uh, yeah the modernists and the postmodernists believe about the nature of man. So, how do we know what to think about man? What you think about God is going to determine what you think about man. That is, our our understanding of the Christian faith, our our belief in God is really the only <coughs> excuse me only system of belief that can rationally and consistently explain the behavior and nature of man. It's the only one, and and it can only is the only one that can explain man's capacity for both good and evil. Only Christianity can do that. And that's because man understands that two main principles, that man is made in the image of the personal God and that he is a sinner. And we'll talk about those here in just a second. So that's the main idea that we want to um, to get at, that, that um, we can have a proper understanding of ourselves and about humanity in general because we have a proper understanding about God. So let's look at these first, these two main ideas. First, we are created in the image of a personal God. And second, we are sinful. So I didn't give you a definition of anthropology yet. Um, anthropology comes from two Greek words like theology. Um, you know, it's a compound of two Greek words. Anthropos is the word that means man and and ology or logos is the study of so the study of man very basically all right so you go to you go to a public university or high school or something and and get a class on anthropology you're going to hear uh, a lot of different things than what you're going to hear this morning all right although I will try to summarize what what they have to say okay so let's look at uh, Genesis chapter 1 in the very first chapter here of the Bible, we get the cornerstone of the biblical view of mankind. So would someone read, someone read verses 26 through 30?
over all the earth and uh, and over every creature thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he, male and female created he them. God blessed them and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the of the air and over every living thing that moveth on the earth. Alright. So here we see that something very important when it comes to our understanding of who we are as humans. And that is that we are made in the image of a personal God. You see that in the text, verse 26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And Again, this includes both male and female there at the end of verse 27. Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology points out that the image of God in us should not be identified with one specific characteristic. So we could say, well, this person is creative, so they're made, they're made in the image of God in that they have the attribute of creativity. Or this person is kind. This person has the attribute of kindness. It's not that. Instead, we actually are made in the image of God the fact that we're made in the image of God means that we are like God and we represent God in all of His attributes. Okay, Have you ever considered that about yourself? That you are like God and you represent God in all of His attributes. Now, you may not represent Him well and obviously even unbelievers are in this category. That unbelievers represent God and are like God in some way. And, and uh, we'll talk about some of those ways in just a second. But let me just uh, clarify here that there are two main categories of God's attributes what theologians call the communicable attributes and the incommunicable attributes. The communicable attributes are those that can be communicated, transferred, that's the idea there, that they can be transferred or mimicked by humans. So can you think of any, I just gave a couple examples, but can you think of any examples of communicable attributes, those that we can mimic of God's attributes? Okay, good. Love. I already gave creativity, kindness is kind of kind of a subcategory of love. Anything else? Any other ways that we're like God? You got another one? Okay, hospitable, maybe. It's kind of a... Okay, good. We have the ability to discern between good and evil. Um... How about personality, right? We, we are a person. We are made up of mind, will, and emotion, just like God is. Okay, there's, there's um, certainly forgiveness and knowledge, the fact that we can know something, um, holiness, uh, certainly there are lots of others. Okay, so that's communicable. When you think about that, think of it in terms of how you are different from an animal, right? Uh, an animal is not mind, will, and emotions. An animal cannot show the capacity for love. Okay, although they may look like it, like they come up and lick you or whatever, but um, but that's actually not love. That's just a um, yeah, some kind of an innate uh, instinct. So then there are the incommunicable attributes of God, and those are the attributes of God that cannot be transferred to a finite being. Can you think of any of God's attributes that cannot be transferred, some that we cannot have that God has, some attribute that... Okay? Omnipotence. Good. So we can't be omnipotent. Uh, that is something that is one of God's incommunicable attributes. 
omniscience, omnipresence. How about uh, what theologians call aseity, that is that He has the ability to uh, create life. He has life in Himself. He doesn't uh, derive life from someone else. We we have to have life, or we, we derive life from something else. You know, the, the, sort, the sun, food, from God Himself, obviously. Anything else? How about eternity? You know, we don't, we're not by nature eternal beings. We have to be given immortality. So, so those types of things. So, when, when I'm talking about what Grudem's uh, saying with regard to the image of God, that we are like God and we represent God in all of His attributes, which kind of attributes do you think he's talking about? The communicable or the incommunicable? Right, the communicable. So, he's one, saying the ones that we can actually mimic. So, let me give you five implications about our view based on the Scriptures of mankind. Number one, man, man has purpose and meaning to life. Okay, we, we have purpose and meaning to life. And of course, that purpose is to glorify God. Secondly, we can know God. Third, we are distinct creatures. Fourth, we are capable of moral goodness and creativity. And fourth, um, we have spiritual worth. We'll talk about each one of those in, set, in kind. Okay, so I'll, I'll repeat them for you in just a second. Number one, there is purpose to human life. And we live to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We, we understand that, that, that life has purpose. This may seem obvious, but it's worth pointing out that postmodernists do not see this. Okay, that, that, we'll talk about that later. They don't see any purpose to life. Secondly, we can know God. Okay, this is the second implication on your that you need to have in your handout or if you'd like to. There we can know God. We could hardly bother being Christians if we didn't believe that we can know God. I mean it's another obvious point, but it's something that's foundational because we're going to look at these other uh views of mankind and they're not going to come to that conclusion. Thirdly, we are distinct creatures. We are distinct creatures. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. He didn't do that in the hearts of animals. Okay. Psalm 8.5 says, You made Him, that is man, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned Him with glory and, and honor. God did not do that to any other creature. We are unique creatures in that way. We are distinct from all of creation. Number, th- number four, we are capable of moral goodness and creativity. Okay, and these are two of God's communicable attributes, the ways that we reflect the image of God, that we have moral goodness and creativity. So actually, Sander, when you said hospitality, that would fit under that category of moral goodness. So would love and all these others that we mentioned, kindness and so on. Okay, so moral goodness and creativity. Notice what God tells uh, his first creatures to to do, his first human beings that he created. Verse 28, chapter 1, God blessed them and God said to them, he gave them a commission, right? He gave them a, a responsibility. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living thing. Verse 29, I've given every plant yielding seed that's on the surface of the earth and every tree and it shall be food for you and every beast of the the earth and every bird of the sky and everything that moves on the earth which has life, I've given it to you for food. So so here's the creation. I've made it for myself, but I've actually made it for you as well. 
Hey, that, that you can prosper from it, that you can uh, live you know, based on the fact that, that um, some of these uh, plants are going to have to die, um, vegetables and so on. And then eventually he would give them meat in Genesis 6. So, uh, so we are unique in that way in that God has given us the capacity for moral goodness and creativity in labor. And so his command to cultivate the earth is one that's that's based on the assumption or the implication that we actually have the capacity to do so. Number five, every human being has inherent spiritual worth. Every inherent being, or um, excuse me, every human being has inherent spiritual worth. Okay, so we said that we are distinct creatures. We're distinct from all of the other all the other parts of creation that God has made. But here we're saying something actually uh, a little bit more uh, more direct, and that is that we have spiritual worth. That is that God values us. We are valuable to God. As the sovereign ruler of the universe, whatever God thinks is reality. Whatever God values is valuable. Whatever God says is true. Our moral and spiritual worth is derived from God's estimation of us. Think of a diamond, for example. Okay, In and of itself, it's just a rock. It's just as valuable as any other rock. I mean, if you just think about it in terms, it's just even a, even a cut diamond, what's the difference between that and just a, an ordinary stone that we pick up and cut and make it in the same shape as a diamond? What's so special about a diamond? And, and the, the reason a diamond is special is because we've attributed value to a diamond. Right, we we've said this is valuable that that we sh- we would pay money for this, or the people who make them you should pay money for this, right? So it has it has value, but it also has value based on the estimation of the people who are looking at it. Now, how did that happen? It's because we ascribed value to it. That the object derives its value from us, and the principle here is that we have no uh, worth by ourselves, but rather our worth is derived, in a sense, from God. I mean, in and of itself, what makes a human better than a dog? Right? And, and the truth is, is that God values us more than a dog. God has, God has um, entered into His creation in order to, to establish and maintain a relationship with us, not dogs, right? So God sees us as as of great spiritual value. Now, this is important for political rights and civil liberties because a Christian understanding, a proper understanding of of who we are as humans, that we have spiritual worth, that every single human has spiritual worth, will determine how we view other people including unborn people, including uh, the, the elderly and infirmed people who maybe may not have uh, you know, that good of a mind or maybe the mentally, uh, mentally challenged and so on. Um, so the first idea about a pre-modern worldview about man is that all humans are made in the image of a personal God. 
All right. Any questions on that? All right. Good. Foundational, basic. Turn to Genesis chapter 6. Second is that we are sinful. These two principles help lay the foundation for how we can know who we are. We are made in the image of a personal God and we are sinful. Genesis 6. <coughs> Someone read verse 5. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Alright. Of course, we have Romans 3.10 says there's no one righteous, no, not even one. There's not even one person who is without sin. Romans 3.23 All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, Ecclesiastes 9.3 The hearts of men are full of evil and there's madness in their hearts while they live and afterward they join the dead. See, we understand that mankind is in a state of rebellion against His Creator. Yes, He's made in the image of God. He has spiritual... Uh, he has worth. He has inherent spiritual worth. However, it doesn't mean that we have a perfect relationship with God automatically. And so there are a couple implications that follow. Because of our sin, we are not in communion with God. And secondly, because of our sin, we are capable of great evil. So, we are sinful, therefore we're not in communion with God. Secondly, we are sinful, therefore we're capable of great evil. Contrary to other worldviews that we're going to look at, Christians believe that we are not born in communion with God. That we are not inherently good that rather it takes an act of restoration, reconciliation to bring us back to God and act that, of course, He performed on the cross. Second, we believe that humans uh, that are cut off from God in rebellion against God have the capacity for, for evil. Evil, whether a dramatic, uh, a dramatic uh, kind like at 9-11 or of a smaller or lesser kind, like a co-worker's envy, should not surprise us. The fact that people do things that they uh, they otherwise wouldn't do or someone else wouldn't do, we can't imagine that someone would do that, that we, we can understand that. Yes, sometimes it's, it's uh, shocking or awful when we hear about terrible evils that happen, but it's not surprising, right? We, we know that people are sinful and, and they're capable of the worst kinds of evil. All right, so that's the pre-modern world view. Any questions? Yes. Someone else want to give a shot at that? Okay. Anyone else want to add to that or put your stamp of approval on that one? Paul? Okay. Good. I think both of those are excellent. You know, anything that falls short of the glory of God, anything that transgresses God's law. In, and that's not just in action or in word. I think what Paul said was good, that, that including your thoughts. So every... Singles and, and even, um, um, well, we don't want to get to that. But, but, but yeah, we'll just say everything that that transgresses God's law. You've crossed over a line. Actually, it's it's more than just transgressing. 
um, it's actually not doing what we're supposed to do, too, right? I mean, that would be a sin as well. Uh, the temptation itself is not a sin. Acting on the temptation is a sin. Right. Lust is absolutely a sin. But but the fact that Jesus was considering, I mean, Satan put the temptation out there. Do you want to take all the kingdoms of the world now and skip the cross? You can have it. You just need to bow down and worship me. I mean, did he go, la, 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 I'm not listening to you? <laughs> he actually considered, right, the temptation, but his heart didn't say yes to it. Paul? Yeah, so I think that there's a difference between a temptation and a sin. We just have to, um, but yeah, when when you actually act upon it, um, you know, um, when when you participate in that lust of whatever it is that you know, I, I there's something that I want and I'm going after it, and it doesn't have to be a a physical thing. It can be something that's all done in the mind. All right, the modern worldview as before. We want to explore the facets of modernism, which there are two, the Enlightenment period and the Romanticism period. So first, the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment thinkers held that man is distinct because he has the capacity for, remember, reason. It's all about the mind for the Enlightenment period. The Enlightenment thinkers continue to think of mankind as a distinct part of the world, so they still saw, yes, we are distinct. Remember that third implication we just looked at. But... The reason that we're distinct is not because that God created us and He made us to be distinct, but rather we're distinct because of our own human reason. So that's that's your blank there, reason. It's not because we're made in the image of God. They don't they don't buy into that. Enlightenment, enlightenment thinkers continue to believe that God tended to view uh, mankind as generally in communion with God. That we're you know, those who believed in God actually said, well, we're already in communion with God. And the reason that we can be in communion with God is because we can use human reason to get to God. Um, we can kind of think our way to having a relationship with God. And they agree with us, pre-modern Christians, that that mankind is distinct and that, that, that we can actually know God. That was uh, another implication. I can't remember which one, but I think it was number two. They also held that we are capable of goodness and meaningful labor, but they believed those things were were really coming out of their own human reason, not because they were made in the image of God. Now, there are obvious views or problems with this view. First, can you think of any human beings without capacity for reason? Don't point anybody in this room, okay? Are there right mentally challenged? Yeah, infants, small children, right. Yeah, then you got the people who are older who have dementia. Um, and um, so even the unborn, right? The Enlightenment worldview has no grounds to call these people human beings. And so some horrible conclusions follow. Cruelly, it implies that those who cannot think cannot know God. They cannot have a relationship with God. That, that if you're not smart enough, right, 
And this is not just about the, the mentally handicapped, right? It's actually talking about people who are not as as enlightened as they are in their thinking, that they can't actually know God. You have to be one of these elite, some of the elite crust of people. And, and so really they have no no um, place for some of these other categories of people that, that don't have the capacity to think. They located human worth within the inner relationship to the divine and became... Um, far, uh, <coughs> far more race conscious. Conscious. That is, this is probably uh, where a lot of the racism began. Remember, uh, in the scriptures, slavery that was going on was not race based. Okay, we we tend to think of automatically we think of slavery, think race based, but that's not the way it was in the scriptures. Okay, it was more uh, just. A lot of times it was just a way to get uh, what they wanted. Not that, that uh, we should condone what they were doing, but, but, uh, but we, in our day, uh, have, have it more in a, a racial, it's more of a racial thing. And so taking to a, an extreme, the modern worldview uh, leads to chauvinistic nationalism and, um, and uh, what do you call it when you kill the old elderly people that are... Euph- not euphemism. That's what I was going to say. Euthanasia. Yeah, euthanasia. Thank you. Um, and so it's not a surprise that, that they would give birth, that the Enlightenment period would give birth to such evil because the key problem is that they ignore the problem of sin. Okay, They can, they can agree with us. We're distinct. We, know, we can know God. But, but they, they disagree on a very important point. Actually, the two main points. One, that we're made in the image of God. And secondly that we are sinners. And so for them, there were no spiritual obstacles to knowing God, only intellectual ones. If you want to know God, you just got to be smarter. You've got to think more. You've got to get, get your head in the books. Uh, the, romantic, the romantics tended to view mankind as distinct uh, in the world by virtue of inner sensibility. Their inner sensibility by some inner capacity. Remember, they're more about the feelings. The the romantics they they still believe that you could have a relationship with God, but they kind of saw God as among them, and that He was kind of in everything. Um, as with the Enlightenment thinkers, they ignore the problem of sin. That's your blank. They're blank there. They ignore the problem of sin, but more to the point, their notion was some kind of mystical inner sense that defined them, and. Um, and they, they based a lot of what they believed and did and thought on their feelings. C.S. Lewis put it this way, um, your feelings at the moment could just as well be a product of what you had for breakfast as the inner pull of a higher force. See, that's, that's totally opposed to what the, romantic, the romantics would say. You know, that, that you, just, you need to follow your heart. You need to... Um, not deny your heart. What, what is your heart telling you? And that's because they saw that we they had a, a a connection with God because of their feelings, and that um, <coughs> excuse me um, that their heart or their spirit, let's say, was the same as the Holy Spirit in effect, right? That that just follow your heart because you know that's that's going to lead you to where where you need to go. Now let's get into the postmodern anthropology. Postmodern worldview of anthropology. We talked in previous weeks about postmodernism. We mentioned that they don't believe in God or in a supernatural order at all. 
nor do they believe in objective reason or standard of rationality. It follows then that they cannot see mankind as defined either by his relationship with God or his possession of reason. So for them, it's it's so messy to even think about because they don't even know what they think. It, I mean, it's it's so hard to describe what they think because there are no absolutes. And so for them, they cannot see mankind as defined by their relationship with God. That leads to four implications about a postmodern worldview of anthropology. Four implications. Number one, man is not distinct. Okay, That's in contrast to what we saw before, where we said man is distinct by virtue of being made in the image of God. For them, man is not distinct. They see little distinction or uniqueness about mankind, which is why you have all these animal activists, right? They treat them like humans. They spend thousands and thousands of dollars. Okay, sorry if you if you've done that before on one of your animals, but to 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 help to you know spend at the vet to, to take care of them. They've got insurance for dogs and, and your animals now. They've got all these formal funeral services that you can have. Um, people call them parts of their family and so on. And and um, you can't do any cruelty to any animals. Um, it's okay to do it to humans, especially the ones that don't, can't think very well, but. But for animals, you know, you gotta, you got to protect them. That's because they believe that man is not distinct. We're just like any other part of God's creation, including animals. Number two, man has no meaning or spiritual worth. Again, in contrast to what we just saw before um, with the, the pre-modern worldview, we believe that man is uh, has meaning and he does have spiritual worth. For them, man has no meaning and no spiritual worth. This is the most profound implication of the postmodern worldview of mankind, and that is that they deny that there is any purpose to human life. The Enlightenment denial of meaning to humans without reason was terrible, right? But the postmodernists actually deny any meaning at all. And according to the book of Ecclesiastes, there is no meaning to life apart from God, right? Life apart from God is futile. That's the point of Ecclesiastes, right? And and uh, Paul says basically the same thing when he says that Christianity is meaningless. We, of all people, are most to be pitied if, if Christ has not been raised from the dead. Right? There, there's nothing that's worthwhile if, if um, the gospel is not true. So they believe that man, meaning, man has no meaning and no spiritual worth. Number three, Man does not have self-identity. Okay, again, these, these people are crazy. Um, but don't say that when you run into them. Because actually, this is a very common, common way of thinking. Man does not have self-identity. In this philosophy, uh, you know, our identity is just another narrative in their minds. Human beings make themselves who they are by the languages they construct and the stories that they tell about themselves. So in postmodernism, the idea of self is a slippery concept, right? Who is man? That's a good question. Who is man? I mean, are, do we really even exist? Are we really in this room? Is this a room? You know, it's, it's so bizarre. Number four, man must create meaning and self. So if they don't have self-identity, then you've got to make your own narrative, you know? You've got to create yourself. Man must create meaning and self. Friedrich Nietzsche believed the way to escape the meaninglessness of life was to create our own meaning and our own selves. So, um, 
basically um, that, that we need to construct our meaning and it requires the courage and will of a superman, is how he described it. Um, Nietzsche's ideal type of man was this person who could create him, his own self. So in his philosophy, there are two types of humans. Those who follow the herd morality or the um, herd mentality and those who go beyond good and evil to achieve greatness. Okay, so the herd mentality is, you know, whatever everybody else is doing, I'm just going to kind of follow. That's kind of one extreme of the person who creates himself. The other is that he goes above and beyond what the herd is doing and he, he creates himself through some act of greatness. And that means that none of the rules apply. Again, they're, they're not about rules at all. Um, this is the Fifty Shades of Grey kind of businessman, right? He's this very important person who works in a high-profile job, but because he's on a higher mission that he can live however he wants, he can indulge in a vice like drugs or bribery or infidelity because he cannot be held down by the standards of the lesser world, lesser people. And as Christians, we know that God's laws applies to every single one of us, no matter who we are, no matter what kind of job title we have. The problem with the postmodern notion of the self is obvious. The meaning that we create in our, in our, of ourselves, like if we create ourselves, create meaning for ourselves, create identity for ourselves, there's no meaning at all in that. If we're going to have something that gives us meaning on which we can stake our lives, it must come from outside of us, something greater than us, someone greater than us. So how do we respond to this? As Christians, we respond to the conclusion of the matter. Um, <laughs> by by helping them to see the nature of reality, the nature of man, and the relationship between the two. So turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. You know, we, I, I just alluded to that, but, but I think it would be helpful for us to look at. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. We, we certainly should recognize and help them to see that, that our life is but a breath, right? It's, it's a vapor, James calls it. Uh, the psalmist in Psalm 39 says each man, man's life is like a breath. It's here for a little while, James says, and then it's gone. It, it just vanishes away. That's our life. Um, and postmoderns, they possibly would agree with that statement. You know, our life is just for a short time, and then it's gone. And so let's, let's live it up. I mean, is their conclusion... They, they come to a different conclusion than we do. Um, but, but along with the fact that our life is but a breath, we also should acknowledge that God loved us and sent His only Son to, to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Despite our smallness and seeming insignificance, uh, God has chosen to value us, to esteem us, to make much of us, and that should give us tremendous meaning, that there should be meaning to life. And uh, particularly, we can respond to the postmodernists by speaking frankly to them and acknowledging that with them that, yes, you know what? Life is meaningless apart from God. But, but notice the conclusion of the matter. Would someone read verses 12 and... Uh, I'm sorry. Chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep His commandments because this applies to every person. 
For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So if you've read through Ecclesiastes, you're, you probably relate very well with it, but then you're also thinking, well, what's going on here? Why, why does he keep saying that there's no meaning in life? Vanity, vanity, or, or uh, meaningless, me, meaninglessness, meaning, meaninglessness. Um, there's no point to life. But then he concludes, and this is what we can't miss, because postmoderns would probably agree with a lot of what is said in Ecclesiastes, but if they don't see any meaning of life after looking at Ecclesiastes, then they don't understand the book. They don't understand the purpose of the book, or they're simply defying against it. And the purpose of the book is here at the end of the, 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 the record here that we have, verse 13. Fear God and keep His commandments. This applies to every person for God will bring. God is a judge. Okay, God will bring to um, bring to um, bring every single person under His authority, and they will have to respond for how they live their lives. As Christians, we recognize the sinfulness of man's nature and the total despair and absurdity that there is. Uh, when we are separated from God. And so we cry this humbled uh, cry for, for God's mercy. And, and we also recognize that this world is fleeting, fleeting and meaningless and futile and worthless unless our lives are grounded in the infinite personal deity of Christ. This life makes no sense if it isn't understood in the context of what God has made and what God has told us. It makes no sense without a context of an afterlife. And so, God is the one who gives us value. God has made us in His image and uh, we have sinned against Him and we need to be restored to Him. And so, the conclusion of the matter, as the wise teacher in Ecclesiastes said, is to fear God and to keep His commandments. Nothing else ultimately matters. Any questions? Jennifer? Covered, covered under insurance now. Yeah, sadly. Right. Yeah. Obviously, um, you do ha- have some exceptions to that. You know, you think. Uh, I think about it in terms of cruelty to animals, cruelty to children. You know, you leave a, a car in a, or, or a car, car. You leave a car in a baby, it'd be in big trouble. But leave a baby in a car on a hot day. Uh, versus, you know, leaving a dog uh, or something. Um, you know, there there are different um, measures that they do, but, but what you're going to find is that people have different standards of measures based on um, where they're at. I think some of that has to do with the fact that they do have a recognition that there is some worth to this little child who's sitting in the car, you know, toasting it. I mean, it's, it's, it's sad, but... Um, but at the same time, they don't recognize this, that there's a, a fetus in the womb of a mother 
that, that has no worth in, in their view. And uh, that, that is uh, extremely sad. And that's why we've had uh, 50, I think it's been 50 million babies that have been killed in the last 35, 40 years. Bill? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of truth to what what he's saying there. That you know, um, there's there's no defiance that that can be done by an animal against a holy God. Um, they're in, completely innocent in that sense. Um, but we, in our sin, have have put us put ourselves in a much lower position in that way. Um, and um, that's that's why God's love is so amazing that He's seeking to restore us despite. What we've done to him, you know, we're, we're the pinnacle of his creation, really, uh, which is why the, the the Genesis narrative slows down at the sixth day for us and tells about more details about how he gave life to man and how he gave life to woman, and um, that's the pinnacle of God's creation, and yet, and yet we we um, rebelled against him, we betrayed him in our sin, and and uh, he still pursued us, and that's what makes his love so amazing. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, your grace and your continual pursuit of us despite our sin. And even after we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, we still do not uh, move to an instant place of perfection. And so that means that we still uh, displease you at times and disappoint you through our sin. We grieve the Holy Spirit. And Lord, for that we are sorry and ask for you to, to restore us and continue to pursue us like we began by singing. Um, be our shepherd, Lord, and lead us all the way until the end, until we are fully perfected and made more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. That's that question that Greg asked about.